We apologise for the poor quality during parts of this recording of a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This unfortunately was due to the serious deterioration of the original master tape. And we hope it doesn't spoil your concentration too much. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the fourth chapter, calling attention particularly to verses 22, 28, and 29. Verses 22 and 28 and 29 in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And all they that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Now in these verses, obviously, we are considering the sequel to what we have been considering together for a number of Sunday evenings. We've been looking at this great and notable incident which took place in the synagogue there in Nazareth, the town where our Lord had been brought up. You remember the context I read to you uh, from the beginning of this chapter just now in order that I might remind you of the setting. You remember how he took that scroll of Isaiah's prophecy and read out those glorious words, how the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, how he'd been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And how, sitting down again on the platform, he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then he went on to preach. That was but the beginning. That isn't the only thing he said. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So obviously, he went on and expounded the passage, worked it out in detail, elaborated it, showed them exactly what it meant. And then here we come to the sequel. Now I'm sure you'll all agree with me that there is at first sight something which is almost incredible in what we are told here. And yet we know that we are dealing with a fact. We are dealing with something that actually happened. We are dealing with something that still happens. There is, of course, no more extraordinary book in the whole world than the Bible. And there is nothing more amazing anywhere than the history that is recorded in the four Gospels. Light and shade, glory and tragedy, hopefulness and despair, it's all here. And that's the astounding thing. But of course the thing that stands out preeminently is this. 
is the fate of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now we are approaching the season of Good Friday and Easter. And though we do not believe in following any church calendar too minutely and too carefully, owing to the state of mankind in sin, it is a good thing that we should bear in mind these days and what they represent. We are simply following the order of the history in the Gospels themselves as we do so. For, I say, the fact is that we are confronted here by this amazing thing, that here comes the Son of God into the world, the Savior of the world. But he was despised and rejected of men. No one has ever produced or called forth such bitterness, such enmity, such hatred, such malice as the Son of God. Now that's the thing. It's the whole message, I say. It is the whole story of the four Gospels and their history. And here it is epitomized once and forever for us in this first incident, in a sense, in his public ministry. For having been baptized and having been tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days, he goes back to his own district and eventually comes to Nazareth. And as I say, he reads out this portion and expounds it. But this is what happened to him. As if at the very beginning he is shown in miniature what's going to happen to him. Here it is, I say, all summarized and put before our eyes so clearly. Now the question we all ask is this. Why was it? How do we explain it? What is it that leads to such history? And I say, I'm not merely talking about it in terms of what happened actually there nearly 2,000 years ago in Nazareth. I'm putting it in because it is the same problem still. It's the contemporary problem. Why is it that mankind rejects the Son of God. It's the standing problem. Here he is, you see, standing before them and preaching this gracious message. Yet they're wild and furious. They're filled with wrath and they try to kill him by throwing him down over the edge of that precipice. And it's still the same, isn't it? The world in its present confusion and muddle and tragedy is still rejecting him and still doing it in exactly the same way. So many people try to persuade themselves into thinking that if they'd been alive at this time, they wouldn't have done this, but they're doing it now. They're doing the same thing. And therefore I say it behoves us to consider it. And of course our most urgent reason for considering it is this. That he said, as we saw together last Sunday evening, that this is not an academic or theoretical question. We can't afford to be spectators with this matter. This isn't a matter that you take up or don't, and it makes no difference. This is not a matter that you can look at in a detached manner. According to this speaker, to this Son of God, our eternal destiny, 
depends entirely and exclusively upon our response to him and to his message. He said, for judgment I am come into this world. How often did he say that in different forms? That is why he's come into the world and the effect of his coming is going to be judgment. I say there is nothing more urgent therefore than just this very question. We either believe him and give ourselves to him or else we reject him. And if we reject him and persist in it, well, we have nothing to look forward to according to him save eternal misery and wretchedness. Therefore, my dear friends, there is no more urgent problem for us than this. And I'm simply holding this picture before you because I do so in the hope and in the faith and in the belief that if we can but see this attitude towards him that is depicted here, we shall so be alarmed at it that we shall fly from it and run to him and give ourselves to him. It is generally easier for us to see truth when it's presented in this form. We can sometimes see the truth about ourselves most easily when we look at people like ourselves. We can see it outside ourselves because there we are not so concerned to defend ourselves. We see the picture, we follow the analysis, we say what a terrible thing, and then we awaken to the fact, but that's myself. I'm like that. And having seen it in that objective manner, we've applied it to ourselves, and then we proceed to deal with it. Well, God grant that as we look at these people in the synagogue in Nazareth and what they did to our blessed Lord and Savior, we all may have such a horror of their unbelief and of unbelief itself that we will not leave this building tonight until we know that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and utterly committed to him. That's why I'm calling attention to it. What's the message? What's the lesson here? What do we find? Well, the first thing that obviously stands out and strikes us at once is this. That these people were attracted to him. To his person. And to his message. That's the thing that stands out first of all. I say they were attracted by his person. Did you notice it in this very graphic and descriptive phrase? We read in verse 20 that he closed the book and gave it again unto the minister and sat down. Now listen. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. We are not told that they just looked casually at him saying, Ah, Jesus is back again. Many a time has he come to the synagogue like this on Sunday. You notice it was his custom to do that. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. And, and they said, Ah, oh, well, Jesus is back again. He's been away. Well, that's all right. He's reading the scriptures as he's done many times before. Not at all. Every eye was fastened on him. Can't you feel the tension? Can't you feel the magnetism? Eyes were riveted upon him. Fastened upon him. That's what it means. They felt that there was something about him which they had never seen and had never known before. 
There is no question about that at all. There is no other adequate explanation of this phrase about their eyes being fastened on him. What was it? It was Jesus, the carpenter, who had been brought up with them and who had spent most of his 30 years of life there in Nazareth and everybody knew him so well. But now they're, they're, they're looking at him. Well, what is it? Oh, the record tells us what it was. When he left home, he had gone to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And there, as he was coming up out of the water, the Holy Ghost had descended upon him in the form of a dove. He had been filled with the Spirit of God. Listen to him, he says, He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And do you remember what the Apostle John says in his gospel with regard to this? That God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Holy Spirit in person, in all his fullness, had entered upon him. And you know, my friend, that can't happen to anybody without its being noticeable. And they sensed it, they felt it. Not only that, he had been there, he had been there tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He had been there the forty days and forty nights without eating. And he'd gone through this stern spiritual battle and conflict. That again must have left its mark upon him. He was truly a man, remember. And here he comes back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and enters into the synagogue of Nazareth. And all these people who'd known him throughout their lives, they looked at him and said, what is this? What's happened to him? There was something new. There was something strange. His very person attracted them. Let's give full weight to that. They were hanging upon his lips, as it were. He hands back the book, he sits down, and everybody is keyed with anticipation. What's he going to say? What's going to happen? Can't you feel the tension of it all? His person itself was acting like a magnet and attracting them. But not only that, it's equally clear from the record that they liked what he said. And they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They said, what is this? Did you? They turned to one another and they said, did you hear him? Did you hear what he said? It wasn't merely that he read the quotation from Isaiah. Did you listen to the way he interpreted it? Have you ever heard such gracious language? Have you ever heard such elevated thought? Have you, have you noticed what he's promising? Have you noticed what he's claiming? Isn't this astounding? Jesus, whom we've always known, they wondered at him. The message pleased them. The message astounded them. The message amazed them. And the third thing I read here is that they were also moved by the way in which he said it. They bear him testimony. They were conscious of an authority and a power. You know, we sometimes read these Gospels, I'm afraid, without catching that. Can you imagine what it was like to listen to the preaching of the Son of God. We read a word like this about him. We are told the common people heard him gladly. 
We are told that on one occasion the authorities sent some soldiers to arrest him. And while, when they got there, he was still speaking. And they just stood and listened and they went back without him. And the authorities said, well, where is he? And the reply they gave was this, never man spake like this man. There was uh, something moving, something captivating. There was something convicting. There was an authority. There was a power. There was something about him. You read it here again. They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Now these people in this synagogue at Nazareth, they sensed all that and they felt all that. They bear him record. They bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. That's the beginning, you see, of the story. And yet, of course, the whole point of the story is just to tell us that all that led to nothing at all. Indeed, the end was opposition, bitterness, hatred, rejection, violence, and attempt to murder him. I ask the obvious question, what went wrong? What was the matter? How is it possible for people who are thus attracted by him and his message and his way of delivering it, nevertheless to end like that? That's the problem. And my dear friends, it is still the problem. And that's why I'm directing attention to it. How is it possible for anyone to consider this person? How is it possible for anyone to read this gospel with its Sermon on the Mount and its gracious evangelical messages? How is it possible for anyone to read about his miracles, his healing, all he did and all he was and all he said, and his death upon the cross and his behavior even there, his thought for that other thief and all the rest of it? How is it possible for men and women to read this all and yet to reject him, to dismiss him, to dismiss it all? and even to manifest a malice and a hatred and a bitterness in their doing so. Well, there is one obvious answer to these questions, isn't there? It's this. It is patent, isn't it, that a general attraction to Christ and his message is not enough? You can have a general liking for the gospel. You can have a general admiration for him. You can even know what it is to be moved by the preaching of this gospel. And yet, to end as these people ended, rejecting him. A general interest in the gospel is never enough. A general interest in him is never enough. There is one other thing that is absolutely essential and it's never mentioned with regard to these people. And that is faith. Faith and committal to him, because committal to him is a part of faith. In other words, the thing we are confronted by as we examine this record of what happened in the synagogue of Nazareth was this. We are looking at a typical instance of unbelief. And according to these records, it is unbelief that finally makes people reject him and sends them to perdition. This is the condemnation, you see, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now we all like that, don't we? But remember what follows it. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Very well then, that's our theme. It is this whole question of unbelief. There is no more striking instances of this than this very one in the synagogue at Nazareth. At the very outset of his ministry, there it happened to him. Unbelief. Indeed, the parallel record in Mark tells us that our Lord himself was astonished at their unbelief. He was amazed at it. He marveled, we are told, at their unbelief. Very well, what are we told about it? Well, as I understand it, we are told three main things here about unbelief. We are given an account of the nature of unbelief. Secondly, we are given an account of the tragedy of unbelief. And thirdly, we are given an account of the causes or the explanation of unbelief. I want to consider them with you. Let us start for a moment by considering the nature, the character of unbelief. The first thing I sense here about unbelief is its power. Rather, perhaps I ought to say, not so much the power of unbelief, as that unbelief is itself a power. Now, the average person's way of thinking of unbelief is this, isn't it? They think that they're absolutely free, that they can listen to the message and express a, a detached and an impartial opinion concerning it. They think that their minds as examiners are entirely unbiased and without any prejudice at all. Evidence is put before them, and in a very balanced and judicial manner, they either express an opinion for or an opinion against. But that's not the way the Bible describes unbelief. The Bible says that unbelief is a state. It's a condition. It's a power that grips us and controls us and absolutely masters us. That's the teaching of the Bible with regard to this. The Apostle Paul puts it about himself when he says that he was once upon a time a blasphemer and an injurious and a persecutor, but he says, I did it ignorantly in unbelief, in a state of unbelief. It's a condition. And it is a condition that controls men. Now, I ask you again to look at it in terms of these people there in the synagogue at Nazareth. Here they are, you see. He steps forward, he's given the scroll, and they look at him and they say, have you noticed the difference in Jesus? What is this? And he reads it and his emphasis and his sermon. They say, have you ever heard anything like it? The gracious words that come over his lips. Marvelous, wonderful, what is this? And yet you see the change that takes place. 
Well, what produces this? How can men change so suddenly? What is it? I say it's a condition. Unbelief is a state. It's a condition. And it grips men, and it controls them, and it manipulates them. And how quickly it can do so. How suddenly the clouds gather. You start with a glorious sunshine here. You say we're in for a marvelous day. The end of this story is going to be that many were converted in the synagogue of Nazareth. Who would have prophesied or predicted that in a few moments they'd be fuming at him and raging at him and rushing him out of the city and trying to throw him down over that precipice? What a sudden change. How quickly the storm arises. How soon men change in their attitude. What is it? Oh, it's nothing but this terrible power of unbelief that controls us and moves us and manipulates us. We are not free in our minds. We are not free in our understandings. We are not impartial. We are already controlled before we begin. And you notice that its power is a power that can lead to wrath. We are told here that they that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. And as you read through your Gospels, you'll see many illustrations of that. You'll see people taking up stones and throwing them at him. You'll see the Pharisees and scribes and the doctors of the law meeting together and plotting, telling lies. Manipulating a case, working up something against him. Have you ever seen such spleen and bitterness and envy and hatred? How furious they were at his miracles. How they hated his teaching. That's unbelief. Not your calm, detached, scientific attitude. You know the modern man likes to put it like that, doesn't he? Oh, well, he's a scientist, of course. He's living in a scientific age. He's no longer gripped by his feelings as people used to be. He now has this judicial, detached, objective approach. My dear friend, what a lie! How untrue it is! No, no, people are still like this. And they still behave in the same manner. And the Bible, of course, tells us why they do it. And the answer is, of course, it's this power of the devil. It's all here in this one chapter, you see. The devil is as, power as, as powerful as this, that he didn't hesitate there in the wilderness to tempt even the Son of God himself. And when he was repulsed once, he came back again. And when he was repulsed the second time, he came back the third. The tragedy of man is that he doesn't believe in the devil. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Or listen again to the Apostle Paul. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe. Yeah, do you realize that unbelief is a condition? How do you realize that it's a terrible power? It isn't men in free will deciding not to believe. It's men biased. It's men controlled by the God of this world. 
who can manipulate him as if he were but a child and do it without men realizing that anything's being done to him. Our Lord's battle in this world was always the battle with the devil. The devil came to him in the wilderness directly, immediately, and in person. And having been entirely routed and defeated, he tried his other method. He worked through his puppets. He worked through his slaves, his dupes, the people whom he'd fooled and whom he's got in his control. They rise up against him, but it's always the same thing. You shall be the son of God. Always the antagonism of hell, the opposition of Satan. That's the whole history of the human race. This terrific conflict between God and Satan, the powers of heaven and the powers of hell. Oh, don't you feel the power of unbelief as you read this story? And then let me direct your attention to the second thing we are told about it, which is it's, that it's based on prejudice. Isn't that very clear here in this story? Look at these people, I say. Come back again. Here they are. They're looking at him and they're impressed. They listen to him and they're impressed. They're moved by what he says. Well, how comes it, says anyone then, that they ever turned against him and tried to murder him? And there's only one answer to that. And it is that they didn't face the facts. They wouldn't face the facts. The evidence was there in front of them and they had to acknowledge it. Their own eyes bore testimony to it. And yet you see they're rejecting. Well, why? Well, as you proceed with your analysis, you'll find it was due to this entirely. That though they saw what they saw, something within them said it can't be true. Did you ever notice this extraordinary verse that we're looking at, this 22nd verse? And all bear him witness and uh, wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said. What do you think they'd say after all that? What you'd expect is this, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it the most gracious thing we've ever heard? Isn't he obviously filled with the Spirit? Isn't this the voice of God? What a privilege we've had to have such a man amongst us for 30 years. What a privilege to have had him with us as an ordinary man. Here is the messenger of God preaching salvation to us. Hallelujah, marvelous, wonderful. No, no. And they said... Is this not Joseph's son? By which, of course, they mean this. They said, we must be a bit careful. This man's playing on our feelings. We are in grave danger of imagining that he is somebody whom he isn't. Ah, they said, wait a minute. This is Joseph's son, after all. We almost felt he was the Messiah. Nonsense, of course, he can't be. He's Joseph's son. Now, where did that thought come from? That's what they said. Notice the gap there in the verse. All bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. 
Then the devil began. The process of unbelief went on. The power of unbelief began to work in them. And when they did speak, that is what they said. Wait a minute. This is Joseph's son. And he read their minds at once and he said, You will surely say unto me, This proverb, physician, heal thyself. Uh, whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also in thine own country. And he said, No prophet is accepted in his own country. That's the answer. He knew exactly what they were reasoning within themselves. But my question is, where has it all come from? How did this idea ever come into their minds? Especially in, light, in the light of what they'd felt. And it's there you see, you see this whole business of unbelief. It's nothing but horrid, horrible prejudice. It's so powerful, this prejudice, that they won't believe what they see. It grips them to that extent that they deny evidence. They had to bear in testimony, his person, his words, his power. And yet they say, can't be. And so they reject him. That's prejudice. And again I say, as you read your way through the four Gospels, oh, you'll find it time and time again. When they actually saw him working miracles, they wouldn't believe it. Evidence stood in front of them and they said, it can't be. They would not face facts. They wouldn't let evidence speak to them. Prejudice was so strong that it blinded them to that which was in front of them. And my dear friends, that is of the very essence of unbelief. And if we learn nothing else together tonight, God grant that we may learn this. Unbelief is not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of knowledge. It is never a matter of reason. But that is what men like to think, isn't it? People who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian gospel tonight in the main say that they are in that position because of their great minds, their intellect. Many a man even goes so far as to put it like this. He says, you know, I'd give the whole world if I could believe it, but I can't. My mind, my reason won't allow me. It's his brain. He who doesn't want to commit intellectual suicide, he says. And his brain, his understanding, it won't allow him to. Don't you see that this incident alone is enough to answer that once and forever? It isn't intellect. It's prejudice. Oh, I can prove that to you. If unbelief is a matter of intellect, well, then, it would of necessity be the case that no man of intellect has ever been a Christian. It would be impossible. If the possession of intellect and understanding and the capacity for reason makes it impossible for men to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then I say, no man of intellect has ever been a Christian. But the fact is, of course, that some of the mightiest intellects that the world has ever known have been great Christians and saints adorning the life of the church. 
Oh, perhaps my simplest way of putting this this evening and the briefest way is to put it like this. It's just to tell you what a professor in these matters in Scotland in the middle of the last century was very fond of saying. He had a class of men, young men, able young men, who had a bit of knowledge and uh, science was coming in at the time and they felt that, of course, having this scientific view and knowledge made it very difficult for them to accept the scriptures and to believe in Christ and the Christian way of salvation and so on. And this professor sometimes used to put it like this to them. Gentlemen, he used to say, I humbly suggest to you that a Christ and a gospel and a way of salvation that uh, were able to satisfy the intellect of a Paul and of an Augustine and a Luther and a Calvin and a Knox and the great Puritans and Whitfield and Wesley and Newman and Gleston and a whole host of other intellectual giants is at least worthy of your careful and serious consideration. And I would repeat that. I've named to you some of the mightiest intellects that this world has ever known. And they believed it, they accepted it all. Don't tell me it's your intellect, it isn't. And another way I could prove that to you is this. Take a man who becomes a convert to the Christian faith. Look at a man who once upon a time didn't believe it, but who now believes it. How do you explain him? What's happened to him? He's the same man with the same intellect. Ah, oh, but you say he's gone soft. Well, you've got to provide evidence to prove that. If you can prove to me that he's now behaving in an irrational manner, or that he talks like a fool, or that he behaves like a lunatic, I'll grant it you. But you can't do that. You'll see that the man is better than he was before. He's more rational. He's still using his same brain. Oh, I could name endless men at this point again. The same men who once rejected it all and said they couldn't believe it, their minds wouldn't allow them to. Later, with the same mind, they believe it and glory in it. It isn't a matter of intellect. Neither is it a matter of knowledge. So many like to think it is. Oh, I'm not... I'm not trying to caricature them. My dear friend, if you are listening to me, I'm not anxious to ridicule you. I'm ridiculing the position in order that I may deliver you out of it. It is not a matter of knowledge. For there is no knowledge that the modern man has which in any way makes any difference to these matters. None at all. I'm including science of which I was privileged to learn just a little. I know of no fact, no knowledge, no information, which in any way makes a difficulty here. It's not a matter of knowledge. No, no, it's entirely a matter of prejudice. It's the same thing as happened in these people there 
in the synagogue at Nazareth so long ago. There were the facts. There is the person. There's the speaking. There's the power. But prejudice begins to work. Can it be? No, it can't be. It's impossible. He's Jesus. He's carpenter. Son of Joseph. It can't be what we were beginning to think. And it's so powerful that the evidence even is pushed on one side. And the facts are ignored. That is the difficulty. It is something, I say, which is based upon prejudice, not upon reason and not upon knowledge. The other element in it that I must refer to is this. Is the element of pride that is so obvious in it. Do you notice how it comes out here? These people in Nazareth, you know, they felt that he was insulting them. He reads their minds and he says, you will surely say unto me this proverb, that's what you're thinking, you might as well say it. Physician, heal thyself. Uh, Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. That means this. That in Capernaum our Lord had worked a number of miracles. But he didn't choose to do so in Nazareth. And that is the thing that they've got rankling in their mind. They feel that somehow or another that he is insulting them. They somehow had this feeling that he wasn't treating them fairly. Why don't you do here, they said, what you did there. In other words, this is wounded pride, isn't it? Pride comes in. They're concerned about themselves and their standing and their reputation. And they feel that this isn't quite good enough. And they're on the defensive. They're defending themselves. Who is this? Does he think he can insult us because he belongs to us? And because he's in his hometown? Why this? And it's always an element in unbelief. God knows... I confess to this myself, I've known it. There is no doubt at all that the thing that often holds us back when everything else is gone is just intellectual pride. If I believe that, what will people say? What will they say in my profession? What will they say in the office? What will they say at home? Ah, they'll say that I've just been carried away. I've just become emotional. It's some sub stuff that has played with me. They'll say, man, where's your mind? Where's your brain? You surely are not going to be carried away by that. And that's the thing we can't bear. We can't stand that anybody should think of us that suddenly we're no longer intellectualists, that suddenly we've lost the capacity for reason and for discernment. We've become fools. We are believing something that is believed by Tom, Dick, and Harry. We are believing something that is believed by poor, benighted pagans in the heart of Africa. People we are here, we here are being converted in places like that. Are we going to join that company? Isn't that it? Our reputation. How we stand with others, what people will think of us, the consequences, the reaction, pride comes in. And we shake it off as these people try to shake it off and did shake it off. 
Well, I needn't keep you. You see, the result of all this was because of all this, instead of allowing him to influence them, instead of sitting and saying, when he finished, Jesus, don't stop. Go on, tell us more about it. We want to hear about this. When will you speak to us again? When can we come back? This is marvelous, men. Keep on. Instead of that, they deliberately shook it off. The feeling, the thing they'd felt, the influence they'd been aware of, and all his personality and his gracious words. And they begin to raise their questions and their difficulties and their problems, the thing that I hope to come on to next Sunday evening. The how and the why and the therefore. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now then, here's the problem. Can it be? It can't. And so all that came up and it ends in their trying to thrust into destruction from the brow of that cliff. There, my dear friends, is the nature of unbelief. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't believe me, that's why. No other explanation. You're just being held by this God that influences you and manipulates you, fills you with prejudices, raises your pride and your self-esteem and your self-defenses. He's doing it all, and you're the victim of unbelief. What a tragedy it is. What a tragedy was enacted there in the synagogue of Nazareth so long ago. Is there anything more awful than this state of unbelief? There standing, reading out of Isaiah, afterwards seated on the platform and speaking the gracious words, is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God incarnate. They're looking at him. And yet they reject him. I call it a tragedy. That it was possible for men and women to look into the eyes of eternal God the Son. And yet to hate him. And to be filled with wrath against him. And to drive him away. And to try to destroy him. The tragedy of the of unbelief is that it blinds us to him and to his glory and to his wondrous person. But oh, there's something still more tragic. Do you remember what he'd been saying to them? He has come to preach the gospel to the poor. If he'd said that he'd come to blast them and to destroy them and to ruin their life and to ruin the world, I could understand their rejecting him. But what he has just been saying is this in a most gracious and moving manner, that he has come from heaven to earth for the poor, the poor in spirit. Those who feel they're down and out and broken and lost and useless. He's come to bind the broken-hearted whom nobody can help and who are breaking their hearts because of the shambles they made of their lives. He's come to bind them and to give them beauty for ashes and a garment of praise instead of sackcloth. 
He's come to open prison doors and liberate men from the captivity and the thraldom of Satan and to deliver them from their besetting, captivating sins, the thing that gets them down and ruins their lives. He's come to set them free from it. He's come to heal their bruises. He's come to tell them about God's love and mercy and compassion and of how God has so loved them in spite of their sin and rebellion and recalcitrance that even he, his son, is going to die on a cross for them in order to deliver them. He tells them all that. He offers them the most glorious blessings of time and eternity. But unbelief blinds them to it all. They hate him. They revile him. They're filled with wrath against him. They work up this enthusiasm to say, away with him, crucify him. And finally they did crucify him. That's unbelief. Do you know any greater tragedy than that? Than that men spurn and reject God's most gracious offers. Most loving proposals. They reject their own happiness. Their own eternal bliss. And thereby bring upon themselves. Wretchedness. Unhappiness. Misery and failure in this world. And eternal perdition. My dear friend. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you thanked him? Is your heart open to him? Have you said, wonderful, give me more, I give myself to thee. Take me, do all you've said and all you've promised. I require nothing but that. I believe that thou art the Son of God, the Savior of my soul. Have you said that to him? If you haven't, you know, it's because you are mastered and controlled and blinded by the hellish, devilish power of unbelief that with its prejudice and its bitterness has blinded you to him and his glory. And the best and the highest interest of your own soul. Oh, I beseech you. Look at those people in the synagogue of Nazareth. Learn the lesson. Fly to him. Praise him. Acknowledge him. Give yourself to him. And you'll find that he's only started. He's only beginning. The glories that he has yet to tell you of. Eclipse everything you've ever heard, and you will be changed from glory unto glory, till in heaven you take your place. Rise up and say, Be gone in unbelief, my Savior is near, he is. Give yourself to him.